Welcome to the October episode of International Voices. My name is Udo Fluck. I oversee the Office of Global and Cultural Affairs in Arts Missoula, and I am the host and moderator of this podcast series. To listen to episodes from earlier this year or last year, please visit artsmissoula.org, click on Global and Cultural Affairs, and visit Radio and Podcasts. International Voices is a monthly podcast brought to you through a collaboration of Global and Cultural Affairs in Arts Missoula and The Trail 1033. Today's podcast is the third and last part of a three-part series on cultures and the environment. And my guest today is Dr. Volker Rachold. He is the head of the German Arctic office at the Alfred Wegener Institute, Helmholtz Center for Polar and Marine Research, which serves as an information and cooperation platform between German stakeholders from science, politics, and industry. Before moving to the German Arctic office in 2017, he served as the executive secretary of the International Arctic Science Committee. Dr. Rahold graduated as a geochemist from Göttingen University, where he also obtained his PhD in 1994. Since then, he worked with the Alfred Wegener Institute. His research focused on land-ocean interactions in the Siberian Arctic, and he led several land and ship-based Russian-German expeditions. Volker Rachold, thank you for being my guest for the October episode of International Voices. You have been involved in the International Arctic Science Committee for the past 27 years. You have been a senior researcher at the Alfred Wegener Institute for Polar and Marine Research. How did you get started in this field? Oh, actually, I started, uh, let's say I started with a PhD on climate research. So my background was always something connected to climate research. And then, of course, my education is geochemistry. So what I did is apply geochemistry to study climate. So and my PhD was on climate from the Cretaceous, so extremely old climate, uh, but still it was climate. And then uh, it was the time when uh, the wall came down and the two Germanys, the two parts of Germanys came together. Of course, and then there were many opportunities opening up in Eastern Germany. And I got the offer to do a postdoc in, in Potsdam at the Alfred Wegener Institute, also climate related. So it was on rivers in Siberia. And I mean, and the, at that time, of course, that was in the early 90s, uh, going to Siberia was like going to the moon. Yeah, And I found, <laughs> I found it fascinating. And so I said, yes, and I started there. And then, yeah, I just continued in, in the Arctic. And uh, I just love the Arctic. So it's a fantastic place. So. That's the, that's the story behind it. Wonderful. Now, as head of the German Arctic office, you are serving as the interface between science, politics, and industry. Could you please elaborate a little bit on that? Yeah, the idea when we, when we formed this German Arctic office as part of the Arctic Wiener Institute was that we wanted to have a tool or an instrument to better communicate particularly with uh, policymakers, so politicians in, within Germany, because there is a lot of interest in, in Germany and the German politics uh, on the Arctic. So for, for various reasons, I mean, of course, there is the Federal Foreign Office, which represents Germany on the Arctic Council. Uh, Germany is, of course, a, quite a large uh, research nation in the Arctic. So the Wegener Institute, I believe, is the largest research institute 
for polar regions in, in the world. So and there is quite a bit of interest. But there are also other interests like the environment. Protecting the environment is of really high priority for Germany. Uh, but there's also, of course, some, indus some industry which is interested in working together with Arctic countries on mainly sustainable development activities in the Arctic. So that was the idea. We wanted to have a forum or an instrument to better talk to policymakers so that they have... Uh, We have on, on one side we have we have a tool to inform policymakers, but on the other side also to get their needs and get their questions back into the science, so that the right. science can really address their questions. Now you just mentioned the indigenous people. Could you talk a little bit more about your collaboration with the Sami Council and the recently published paper on Arctic indigenous peoples? Yeah, I, I had a long Let's say I have a long history on working with the Arctic Council and, of course, the permanent participants. That's what they are called in the Arctic Council. So the organizations that represent the indigenous peoples in the Arctic on the council, they are always sitting at the council, of course. And as permanent participants, they, they have a very strong say on what the Arctic Council does. So they are not members like the eight Arctic states, but they are called permanent participants, which means there's no decision taken in the Arctic Council without asking and uh, consulting with the indigenous peoples. So, and this is why, why I, know, I know many of them because uh, as an executive secretary of the International Arctic Science Committee, we were also observer on the Arctic Council. So I, I always met them at the meetings. So, and I have a long history of talking to them. So I know Sami Council since almost 20 years. I think that was also helpful in terms of producing this paper because the, you need some trust, of course, you need a trustful relationship. Uh, and that, that takes some time to build up this trust with indigenous people. So I think that was, that was probably the key, uh, key important thing to make this really happen. Right. Um, as a geochemist, what impacts of anthropogenic climate change have you seen affecting Arctic nations and the four million people living there, particularly indigenous peoples? I mean, we know we know that we know now that the Arctic is warming much much faster than the rest of the globe on average. So so far, we at the moment we have a global warming of about 1.2 degrees Celsius since let's say pre-industrial times. But in the Arctic, it's three times more. So right. in the Arctic, we we're already talking about something like three four degree warming, and of course that changes many things in the Arctic. I mean, everyone sees the sea ice disappearing. Everyone sees the Greenland ice sheet uh, starting to melt. But we also see the permafrost, uh, especially in Siberia, but also in Alaska and Canada, thawing. People live there, and of course this has an impact on living conditions. We see the costs, for example, eroding. That's a very specific. Thing. And of course, it affects people living there. Many people live at the coast in the Arctic. So uh, we see, of course, vegetation changes. We see the, uh, the seasons changing and the spring starting earlier and uh, fall start, uh, starting later. Of course, that affects the people living there um, and especially the indigenous peoples. I mean, they're used to adapt to changes in the Arctic and they always tell us, of course, we know this because we lived there since millennia. But still, this is, of course, really a challenge for, for all of them. So changes that we see in the Arctic. Now, and, and I, I would like to go off a little bit um, uh, off of my questions that I have, simply because I find it fascinating. And oftentimes when I have these conversations, mm -hmm. as, as the conversation takes place, there are other 
things that come to mind or one wants to elaborate on a previous point. When we talk about indigenous people and their environment, um, it seems as though indigenous people have learned to adapt to changes in the environment for thousands of years. But this, this development that we have seen in the last 50 years would require a major adaptation of indigenous people. How, how does that work? Is this outside of their normal, typical adaptation range, would you say? Or is this something where they're saying, well, nature has always changed. And so we're just, we're, we're flexible enough to change with it. Or is this a much more profound change we're talking about? I think we have to we have to see two things. First, of course, we see the environmental changes, right, which are already challenging indigenous peoples. Of course, I mean, as you say, of course, they are used to adapt to changes, but changing to something which is happening so fast is also for right. them a major challenge. But the other thing is, of course, what happens in the Arctic, let's say, on the socioeconomic level. I mean, we see more and more industry coming to the Arctic. We see tourism coming to the Arctic. We see uh, shipping in the Arctic increasing. And of course, all of this affects the people, the indigenous peoples in particular. Um, we see, for example, also regulations affecting them. Yeah. So, I mean, of course, they are part of a, of a country or of, 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 of a state. And of course, the state uh, introduces new regulations. For example, when they are allowed to, to, to fish, which kind of fish, at what time of the year, for example. Right. And that of right. course affects them. So when you talk to them, you are sometimes surprised to hear that they tell you, okay, climate change, of course, is a challenge for us, but all the other changes we are seeing, we are facing due to the, let's say, socioeconomic changes in the Arctic are much more difficult for us. Yeah? And that is sometimes very surprising to hear that. So it's a combination yeah, I, of both, I would say. Yeah? Right. And I would think that um, that the change in wildlife or the the push of wildlife from certain areas into other areas must be a, a big adjustment as well as far as food, uh, food sources and cultural practices of using a certain products such as fur and and, and other products that that the Sami have used for generations to, to sustain their living. I mean, those kind of things I'm sure are, are a profound impact as well when your food sources disappear. Yeah, I think they, they, the way they, they, they live, of course, they live with the nature. They are used right. to live together with the nature. They are not dominating the nature, they live with the nature. And for example, when you ask them about, the, especially the reindeer herders, they would tell you, we do, we follow the reindeer. So the, it's the reindeer's life cycle that tells us uh, how, to, how, how to, to move in the Arctic. So, and of course, the, these, these cycles are changed through right. um, environmental changes. Yeah. So right. the reindeers have difficulties with finding the right places for, uh, for grazing. And, and of course, this is important for the people as well. So, sure. and all the indigenous knowledge that they developed over millennia, which tells them how to behave and what to do, it doesn't really right. work anymore. Because things change. And that is, of course, a big issue for them. What type of progress have you seen in terms of dialogue between scientists and politicians integrating indigenous knowledge, the knowledge we just talked about, when it comes to shifting to sustainable development over the exploitation 
of the Arctic for economic interests such as shipping, oil and gas, exploration, fishing, and even tourism. I think I think very important, uh, let's say, body in the Arctic is the Arctic Council. And of course, the Arctic Council is an instrument and it's a, it's a, it's a forum that the indigenous peoples, as, as I explained, as participants are using since 25 years now. So this year, the Arctic Council has its 25th anniversary. Uh, and I think the Arctic Council has been very supportive and especially over the last few years, the integration of indigenous knowledge has become more and more important in the council. So, and the Arctic Council has uh, six working groups, which are, let's say, the scientific instruments of the council. So providing the advice that the ministers, which are, let's say, heading the council that they need. And all these working groups are now trying to integrate indigenous knowledge. So they're working together with the permanent participants so that all the scientific activities are informed also by indigenous knowledge and developed together. Uh, this is in, in the Arctic Council. I think this works already quite well. Um, I mean, of course, if you talk about science from especially other countries like in Germany, I, I think we are just starting to realize how important that is. Right. And especially for natural, natural science, it's, it's sometimes difficult to understand uh, how this can help, uh, let's say, on, in a scientific context. But I right. think people are more and more realizing that this is so important because... The indigenous knowledge is exactly what uh, guarantees the sustainable activity that the indigenous peoples are, because they are absolutely sustainable. They live with nature. And so this is ideal model of being sustainable, you can say. Right. Yeah, it's interesting. And again, going a little bit uh, off of my script, um, we have seven uh, Native American tribes in Montana. And, um, and I work with Native American educators every so often. And it's interesting to just appreciate the angle or the lens that indigenous people have when it comes to sustainability of anything. Um, I find this fascinating compared to uh, non-indigenous people that there is this, like you said, there is this connection to nature. There is this, like you said, for the Sami, we follow the reindeer. We, we, we just sort of see what the reindeer do, and then we'll, we'll just go with that and everything will be fine. And it's the same here when you talk to indigenous individuals, there is this, this guidance in nature or this guidance or this trust in nature even that um, is hard to find uh, and, and perhaps would be nice to see in non-indigenous people, a little bit closer paying attention to nature and what nature is telling uh, humans. I mean, just as a side note, when you, and you were talking, it's, it's sort of interesting that indigenous people, no matter where they are, seem to be, seem to follow that kind of an approach much more so than, uh, than non-indigenous people. Moving a little bit from our conversation um, that was so far Arctic specific to how the rest of the world is impacted by uh, climate change, are the extreme weather events that we have witnessed this spring and summer, um, and particularly in the United States with hurricanes and floods, uh, particularly the devastating rainfall in uh, New York recently with, with pictures of uh, flooded subways, and is that connected to climate change? We had similar things here in Germany. Right. We also had floodings here just a few right. weeks before. 
it is of course it's of course difficult to um, um, attribute one specific event to climate change, as you know. Right. You, you cannot do that. But what scientists are telling us, and the last IPCC report that came out just a few weeks ago was very clear on that. What we know is that the, the frequency and the intensities of these extreme events, events is something that is driven by climate change. So we have to expect those things more and more. They, they become more frequent and they become intense and they intensify. And that is something which is clearly connected to, to climate change. And it's pretty easy to explain it because if you have a warmer atmosphere, you have more moisture in the atmosphere and you can have more rainfall. So it's right. a very simple story at the end. And it is something that scientists are telling us since 20 years. You know? Right. Uh, it's nothing new. So, but uh, I think I think we now start really to see those kind of things getting more and more intense and more and more frequent. So it is something that we will have to expect even more in the future. So it's not unusual. Though, of course, you cannot attribute one single event specifically to climate change. That's a different right. story. But but you're right uh, when you're saying that there's there's now more proof, perhaps for the doubters that were always wondering if, if climate change is a real thing, when you see a flooded subway or, or flooded streets um, that haven't been flooded in the last 100 years, one has to wonder if, if this is the proof of what was predicted. Although, and on that same note, I remember seeing earlier models of climate change that were based on data, uh, you know, 30, 40 years ago, it seems as though um, perhaps some of these models have been adjusted, as in there must have been some progress made and there must have been some positive influence that scientists have noticed um, that that sort of improved the modeling perhaps a little bit. Would you agree with that? Of course they did. I mean, the computer technology is very important. I mean, running these kind of models requires really huge computers, right. very powerful computers. And of course, there has been some progress made over the last years in, in these computers. And also the, the, the data that are feeding the models, of course. Right. And that's, that's the thing we're working on. So we need better observations to feed our models. Of course, that's also much better than it used to be, let's say, 20 years ago. But at the end, it's interesting to see that what, what, when we look at reports that came out 15 years ago, right. the overall picture was quite similar. So it didn't change the direction. It made things just clearer. And I mean, the IPCC for the first time said that there's, there's no doubt that this is man-made climate change. And before that, the IPCC reports were, were always quite careful with saying we have 90% or we have 90% confidence. This time for the first time, they said, there is no doubt. It is clear, it's obvious. Wow. And I mean, this year, was a, this year was an unusual year. So we had, you mentioned the floods, but we also at the same time, we had the wildfires in, right. in the US, in Siberia. Siberia was on fire. Yeah? Uh, we had for the first time, and that never was never recorded, we had rainfall uh, on the summit in Greenland which is in, on the Greenland ice sheet, uh, elevation of 3,000 meters, three kilometers, and there was rainfall. And that was never observed so far. Last year, for the first time, we had something like 22 degrees Celsius uh, in uh, Svalbard, Spitsbergen, which is very close to the, which is very close to the North Pole. Yeah? Right. So especially in the Arctic, we are seeing these extremes more and more 
frequent, yeah, simply because the Arctic is warming three times faster than the rest of the globe. Right. Yeah, it, it connects well to um, the podcast I did last month where I talked to an NPR reporter that um, has specialized in wildfires. And he was talking about the fact that the previous year, the fires in Australia, um, parts of Australia burned that have never burned before. And scientists were, were, were just shocked by the fact that some of these rainforests in, in Australia that, that typically don't burn or, or can't burn uh, were actually on fire. And he said the same thing, uh, that because this year and last year were the hottest years on record, that we're moving into a very interesting uh in a very interesting phase where things are observed for the first time that never happened before. So probably what he said, what he observed in Australia is similar to what you just said with the temperature spikes in the Arctic that has never been 22 degrees. Uh, and, and so some of this may just almost be entering a new phase, perhaps. Would that be appropriate to say? Yeah, I think we are we're we are now seeing those things that have been predicted since many years already. We're seeing those things happening now. And right. We see these extreme events. We had, for example, in uh, the highest temperature ever recorded in, in Europe this year in, in Italy. It was something like close to 50 degrees. And there was this in Canada. This was in the summer, I think, in Canada, northern Can in Canada, north of Vancouver. They had almost 50 degrees, I think, 47 or something like that. Yeah. Highest temperature ever recorded there. And I mean, it is pretty obvious that this is it's not one single event. So it's spread around the globe and it's right. a number of events. Right. Uh, and it's different things. So it's rainfalls, uh, it's forest fires, it's just temperature spikes. So, um, and, uh, but more and more frequent and more and more intense. And I think this is pretty obvious that this is happening. Yeah, even us here in Missoula, Missoula is 1,600 meters uh, in elevation. So we normally have a mountain climate. And this summer, and, and in the past, I've lived here for 30 years. So in the past, when we had two or three days in the summer that were over 100 degrees, over 40 degrees Celsius, it was mm -hmm. remarkable if, if we had three days. This summer... I don't, I stopped counting at some point because we had weeks where it was four days, five days over a hundred degrees. And it was just sort of a, a new normal. And, you know, it, it impacts what you do with your, you know, water rationing. There were several places that basically told people, stop watering your lawn and stop watering your flowers because there isn't enough water for people to drink. So forget about your lawn. If your lawn dries up, well, so be it. So there were some completely new directions that, that people were given that were unheard of, especially in Montana, where you have mountainous climate. So even for us, this was something that we felt right here was unusual and certainly concerning. Um, along the same lines, are you worried that as ice loss continues to speed up in both Greenland and Antarctica, parts of the ice sheets could eventually destabilize and collapse entirely. What would that mean for sea level rises around the world? 
That is one of the, let's say, biggest issues that we are, biggest concerns that we have uh, in terms of the changing Arctic or the warming Arctic, but also the Antarctic, as you say. Uh, I mean, if you look, just look at the figures, if you take Greenland, the Greenland ice sheet, if that completely disappeared, uh, it would result in six, seven meter sea level rise globally. Six to seven meters. I mean, of course, it won't disappear within two or five years or not even hundred right. years, like longer, but the potential is there, six, seven meters. And then if you look at the Antarctic, so if the Antarctic ice sheet uh, disappears, uh, if, if it thaws, if it, if it melts, that would be 60 meters of sea level. So in total, uh, Greenland and Antarctic would be 70 meters of sea level. Uh, I'm, I'm also a geologist, so, and of course we had that during geological past. Uh, there were phases in the past where we had no ice, and where sea level was 70, 70 meters higher than today. Of course, right. on geologic, we say geological timescales, which means right. millions of years, of course. Right. But what we are seeing now, we are seeing now things happening that this melting of Greenland, that this goes within years or decades. And uh, I think the last IPCC was also very clear on that, that this is, of course, a big concern for us. So, uh, so that the, so far it was mainly the, warming of the ocean that resulted in sea level rise. You can imagine if the ocean gets warmer, the water gets warmer, uh, it expands, and so the sea level is rising. That was the main reason for rising sea level. But now since some, uh, years already, uh, it's the contribution of the, the ice that's melting. I mean, if you have ice sitting on land and that ice melts, of course, the water flows into the ocean and the sea level rises. And that's now the main factor in sea level rise. And what the IPCC expects until the end of this century, so within the next 80 years, is a sea level increase between half a meter and a meter, which just doesn't sound much, but for some countries it is. I mean, take the Netherlands, for example, take oh, sure. the island states, so the oh, sure. for example, they're gone. You know? Right. If, it, if it's one meter, and, and that's a pretty, uh, I would say, conservative value, as the IPCC also said. So it could be more. Right. And this time, for the first for the first time, the IPCC um, uh, ran the models until 2,300, so another 200 years, and then they said, okay, if we do that, we cannot even rule out that this is a 15 meter sea level rise by wow. 2,300. So that is not really, it's not very not, not very likely, but we cannot rule it out. Yeah? So and we so we are talking about meters of sea levels, right. and that is of course something uh, we we should be worried about. I think. Yeah? Oh, absolutely. And even people that are not living in coastal regions that might initially react as in, well, so a little rise of, of sea level uh, doesn't impact me. I live 200 miles away from the coast. But I think the scenario that you just described, it would. It would impact pretty much everybody, no matter where you live. And so I think this attitude of, well, it's not happening in my backyard, so to say, doesn't work anymore because it's everybody's backyard all of a sudden. Yeah, we, we shouldn't forget, of course. I mean, a major portion of the population of the globe lives at the coast. Right. And of course, if they, if, if, if they all start uh, moving away and they all become refugees, I mean, right. we are talking about a number of refugees that we cannot even imagine. And then, of course, right. then you're right. Of course, it, affect us, it will affect everyone, no right. matter where you live. And this is an interesting term you just mentioned, uh, climate refugees. Um, I, uh, from the things that, that I read until 20 years ago, when I think the first sort of 
climate refugees or not even 20 years ago, 10 years ago, were mentioned. Before that, there wasn't even a term. Nobody had ever used the term a climate refugee, a person that is displaced from their natural habitat to a new location because of climate. But this is obviously now something that we see quite often around the world already is that people have moved away from from areas where they used to live and where they used to uh, uh, have some kind of a livelihood uh, to areas where where they themselves are strangers and are not familiar in their environment anymore. Um, so that's obviously something that could become a much bigger issue if things progress in the way that you have described them with the modeling that is out there. Somewhat uh, uh, a wake-up call, again, for those people that that have doubted that this is much of an impact for the general population, perhaps. Yeah, but we should possibly not be too pessimistic about it. I mean, there's always, I mean, what the IPCC does, the IPCC calculates different emission scenarios. Right. So they, they always use a, uh, say, business as usual. We just continue as we did before scenario, right. which is, of course, the worst. Right. But then they also have, have, have one which uh, is, let's say, the Paris Climate Agreement 1.5 degree aim. Yeah. And if you compare the two scenarios, of course, the, the outcome is very different. And then, of course, the, the, the whole story doesn't sound so dramatic. And uh, instead of, let's say, one meter by the end of the century, it's only half a meter. Yeah? Right. That is already a big difference. And that relates to everything, so to all the things which we, we see. So it's still in our hands. So we can right. still do something about it. And that's, I think, a very important message. So Absolutely. Uh, but we have to do it now. That's the point. Right. We cannot wait another 20 years. That doesn't work. No? Right. Now, that would bring me to the next question. What can we learn from the indigenous peoples in the Northern Hemisphere? What have you observed through your interactions with them? And how can we be more respectful of our environment and coexist with our ecosystems? Um, I mean, of course, we, we talked about that, that they, they live with nature. And this is probably the most sustainable way of, of, uh, of uh, living right. that you can do. But I mean, of course, then the question is, would it be possible for 10 billion people living on this globe to live this kind of a life? We don't have that nature. So I think we don't have enough nature for doing that. So, I mean, of course, we can learn from that, but it's possibly not a model that you could simply... Uh, use for, for the whole population of the globe. It simply right. doesn't work. Uh, so we can take some elements maybe from that, some elements that are useful, for example, in terms of uh, agriculture. I mean, we have agriculture in, in, our, in our countries is uh, industrial production, completely industrial production. And of course, this uh, is, first of all, the products are not very good. Yeah? And, and secondly, of course, it has so many consequences and so many negative effects for, for the environment. Um, that of course this is not ideal. So maybe we can learn from indigenous peoples on how they how they get their products and how they they, they get their livelihood from from nature. I think there is something we can we can take from it. Though it, I think it's probably not possible to for the whole population of the globe to live this kind of indigenous life. It doesn't work. So we have to be realistic. Right. Right. What are some recent events and projects? you have been planning and implementing that you could tell us about? I think the largest, the largest project at my institute, uh, 
did uh, last year was the, the so-called mosaic expedition. I guess some people heard about it. It was the largest polar expedition ever that used our icebreaker polar stern uh, sitting in the central Arctic Ocean for one full year, frozen in the ice and drifting with the sea ice over the Arctic Ocean with hundreds of scientists on board and studying, let's say, the whole system in the Arctic during one full year. So from wow. uh, autumn to autumn 2000, no, they started in 2019 and then the expedition went until uh, autumn 2020. So okay. one full year uh, on board of a research icebreaker frozen in the Arctic Ocean and that was a huge expedition and of course, we hope to understand much more, especially on what the sea ice, the role of the sea ice in the climate systems. So one thing that we start to realize and start to understand is that the sea ice is an extremely important element in the climate system. Hmm. Because it's, um, for example, what we are t t talking about, these um, heat waves we experience in North America or in Europe, right. also these cold, these cold events that, you had in North America, um, in, let's say spring, March or something like that. Right. These colds, both the cold and the hot events in summer are connected to the sea ice because the sea ice uh, triggers also the atmospheric circulation patterns. Uh, ah. it's, mainly the, it's mainly the jet stream, which, which moves around the globe, right. uh, which is kind of responsible for our climate. And if you have a uh, weaker sea ice and smaller sea ice cover in the Arctic, this uh, jet stream pattern is changing and the jet stream starts to kind of meander, so move up and down. Right. Uh, and it brings either cold air from the north sure. to the south, or it brings warm air from the south more to the north. So, and that is something which directly affects our climate in uh, North America and in Europe and also in Asia. And it is made. It is made in the Arctic because the sea ice is kind of the driving force behind it. Sure. Now, so, and that was the reasons for doing this this expedition one year around, and especially from the winter seas, we we don't have really data. We don't know much what's happening in the Arctic in winter. It's so difficult to get there. Right. So, and that was the reason for that. So that makes me think then what you just said about um, uh, the ice directly impacting jet streams. Does that would that also apply for underwater currents? Uh, are are they impacted by that as well? That is another story where scientists are really working on hard things already since years, uh, because at the end, of course, the, the let's say the climate engine of our globe is the ocean. right, right. So the ocean and the ocean and it's driven in the Arctic. Uh, it's driven or in the North North Atlantic Arctic. And it's driven by very cold and dense uh, water sinking to the to the ocean floor, right? And then moving southward through the Atlantic Ocean and right. until the Pacific Ocean coming up again, and then moving backwards uh, a surface current. And this is kind of the engine that transports heat uh, over the globe. Right, and it's triggered, and it's triggered mainly by by sea ice by sea ice formation. Because if you form sea ice, you leave. Of course, sea ice is uh, is uh, fresh water. Yeah? So right, the salt stays in the water. So right. when you form sea ice, you produce the, the rest water is very salty, and it's very cold, and that makes it very dense. So this sea ice formation, of course, is actually the driving 
mechanism or the engine behind this ocean circulation. Right. And of course, we are we are worried if if uh, we change things in the system uh, that this ocean circulation doesn't really work anymore. Which, for example, would mean that the, the Gulf Stream, which makes Europe so warm and mild, and Norway, for example, so mild, if that right. doesn't work anymore, we have a problem. And so this is again why the Arctic is so important. The same is with melting Greenland. If you melt Greenland ice sheet, of course, it's fresh water because it's right. from snow. Right. You introduce more. You introduce more fresh water, huge right. amounts of fresh water into this area, the same area where this engine of the ocean circulations is sitting. And of course, the fresh water would also result in slow and lowering this uh, driving force and sure. uh, resulting in changes in this ocean circulation. So this is another mechanism which is really important. You know? And I'm just thinking about this because uh, obviously it's not something that that I'm uh, I'm I have a lot of knowledge in. And just listening to you and putting the pieces together, it seems then that the melting of of ice sheets could not be only influenced by higher temperatures and 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 therefore warmer air but they could also melt from underneath so if the is that right or am i exactly it's exactly right and that's what we see so i mean of course if you look at the greenland ice sheet also on the antarctic right in there right of course you have the first thing is of course atmospheric temperature which right. results in surface melting of the ice sheet yeah this is pretty straightforward but then of course if you have warmer ocean water Right, uh, and in some cases, the water is directly connected to the glacier. Right, in Greenland, it's it, there are also glaciers which which end on land. Then it's no issue, of course, because then there is no direct link. Right, but especially in the in the Antarctic, of course, the the glacier or the ice sheet of the Antarctic uh, is let's say reaching out into the ocean. And right, of course, you have warm ocean water underneath the ice. And that, of course, uh, results in the weighing of the ice. So then it's a pretty complex mechanism, but uh, of course it's important. Yeah. But you're almost getting a double impact then in that mechanism, because not only are you unfortunately melting the ice on top, but you're also melting the ice from underneath, which seems to be twice as bad, for lack of yeah. a better description, than if you would have to deal with just one of those issues. Yeah. Huh. Yeah, that's that's that, that's it's it's an important uh, important factor that of course results in melting uh, of the ice sheets. Yeah, yeah. Now this this uh, long term study of if one can call this one year uh, of an icebreaker a long term study, but it's longer than than many studies that are just specifically doing one thing in a short period of time. Are there other projects like this that you are planning on for the future? Um, that that would look at observing impacts on a longer uh, time spans, like several months or a year. We just we just started uh, a few weeks ago. We started a pretty large uh, European funded uh, project, which with the aim of um, establishing and implementing an Arctic observing system. Uh huh. As I said, if we if we want to model things if we want to have better predict prediction of things we need right. we need we need data we need observations right and it's a huge project it's a european union funded project which involves i don't know 30 40 
different institutes from Europe with, of course, North American partners and with uh, Asian partners as well. Uh, and that is a four-year project. Uh, total is something like 50, 50 million euro. So it's quite a bit of money. You know? so, wow. Uh, and that looks into uh, different components of such an observing system. So what kind of data you need, how do you get the data, how, you, how do you work with the data, uh, how do you, commun do you communicate with people. Um, also in terms of indigenous knowledge, that's of course an important contribution to their project. Right. Um, that just started. So and it's, we will see what, how far we get in four years. Uh, sure. But I think, I think we need those kind of larger projects, integrating things uh, on a global and circumarctic level, uh, because this is the baseline that we need for uh, the data basis we need for, uh, for our models, for our prediction. Right, so. right. Well, that would bring me to my last question. And that is, from your perspective, how can everybody help in, in this quest of, uh, of climate change? How, how can the average person, because I think it's, it's, that is perhaps part of the problem that a lot of people say, well, you know, what could I possibly do? I, I live this little existence here with my family and, you know, we don't, and we recycle, uh, you know, our glass and our aluminum cans and whatnot. And, and we try to be, we try to be good global citizens. What could we possibly do? That kind of a, of an attitude. Um, and so I thought I ask you that in closing for today, what are there some things that, that um, our listeners could, could say, oh, I didn't know that's something easy that I could actually do and improve the situation. What would that be? I think everyone can do something. And of course, it's not the same thing applies for everyone, but I mean, there are many, many things that where you can start. So for example, um, take your, your, uh, your food. Of course, if you buy organic food and if you eat less meat, if you try to reduce your meat consumption, uh, only let's say meat every second day or once a week. Yeah? The thing is, of course, uh, it's always difficult to tell people you are not allowed to do that. Right. People, the first thing is, I think, to understand uh, that you do something uh, for your nature, for, for everyone, but you also do something for yourself. I mean, eating right. less meat is also good for your health. Yeah. So, uh, so for example, we, we try to do that, eat less meat. The other thing, of course, if you if you have a car, uh, for each time you take the car, you can just think, could I just take the bicycle, for example, or maybe walk or whatever? Do I need to take the car? Yeah. Right. So, for example, I cycle to I cycle to my office every day. I don't even take a car to the office. I mean, of course, it's not a long distance, but it, it works. Yeah. Sure. Sure. Uh, flying, flying is a big thing. So, I mean, if you fly, of course, sometimes you have to fly. It's not avoidable, and you have to fly. Right, but uh, I think we learned a lot from the from the pandemics with all the video conferences. We learned. I think that's also what the scientists have learned that many things can be organized through a video conference, and you don't you don't even have to fly. So I think if you, and flying is of course a huge mission. Sure, we know that. You know? Uh, and if you have to fly, you can still compensate. I mean, at least right. it's something. Yeah, you can compensate for your flight. That's one thing. Uh, your house, heating of the house, uh, uh, isolation of the house, uh, and those kind of things, uh, you can do a lot. Yeah, with uh, let's say if if you need a new heating system, buy buy a heat pump. 
don't take gas or oil or whatever, buy a heat pump. It does a lot. I think, yeah, and so there are many, many examples and many things that, that you can do um, without, let's say, uh, starving or without uh, missing something really important. I think that's that's the key message. Uh, nobody should starve or whatever. Uh, sure. But but it's it's not so difficult, actually. Yeah. Right. And the fact that, that um, it applies to everybody and it's not that this only is um, advice for a certain part of the population, but that, like you said, that everybody can make a difference with just um, being more conscious about what we do and how we do it. Um, so I think that's excellent advice. Um, thank you so much uh, for your time and for your uh, insight uh, into the topic. Um, I really appreciate that. And um, yes, I, I'm, I learned a lot uh, from just listening to you and uh, thinking about some of these things and making some connections in, in my own head as I was unaware of some of these things. Um, so uh, I'm sure that our listeners will find the same. And, and so thank you for sharing your expertise with us. Thank you. Thank you very much. Many thanks to Dr. Volker Rachold, head of the German Arctic office at the Alfred Wegener Institute in Potsdam, Germany, for his time and for sharing his experience in the field. This was the third part of a three-part series focusing on cultures and the environment. Before I sign off, I would like the listeners to know that the Worldview film series is back at the Roxy this fall with a theme, Cultures in Flux. And the award-winning animated film, The Breadwinner, will be shown on Monday, October 11th at 7 p.m. The film is sponsored by Rydek Law Offices in Missoula and is free to the Missoula community. There are two more screenings scheduled for this fall, all free to the public because of generous sponsors near and far. Two things that are new this fall, following each film, Marisa Diaz-Wayne from Merlin CCC in Helena will facilitate a community conversation inspired by questions raised in the movie. The conversations have the aim of creating a space for thoughtful dialogue, reflection, and sharing. Every person through the door at each Worldview Film Night receives a raffle ticket for a dinner for two at a Missoula restaurant. The winners of the raffle prizes will be announced at the end of the community conversation. To the listeners near and far, please join me again next month for a new episode of International Voices. As always, thank you for listening. Those of you who are regularly tuning in to International Voices know, being of German descent, I usually end with a German farewell. Dankeschön fürs Zuhören. International Voices is brought to you by Global and Cultural Affairs of Arts Missoula and The Trail 1033. This and previous International Voices podcasts can be found at artsmissoula.org and thetrail1033.com. 